0: Welcome to the seventh annual lecture in honor of Lieutenant Commander Eric S. Christensen. Commander Christensen was a man of unusual talent, cultivation, and valor. He graduated from the Naval Academy with honors, and he taught English classes there as he attended the Graduate Institute at St. John's. He was a lover of the arts and of literature. In 2005, While serving as a task unit commander of a SEAL team in Afghanistan, he led a mission to rescue a SEAL reconnaissance squad that was engaged in a firefight with overwhelming Taliban forces. He and 10 other SEALs died in that effort. And for his service, he was awarded the Bronze Star with a V for valor, as well as the Purple Heart. His father, Admiral Eric K. Christensen, and his mother, Suzanne Christensen, are both present this evening. The friends and family of Commander Christensen established this Memorial Lecture Series to create closer ties between his two alma maters in Annapolis and to stimulate our thinking about civilian-military relations and the place of liberal arts in military education. It's a pleasure to welcome tonight our friends from the Brigade of Midshipmen and also to welcome Captain Robert Chadwick, Commandant of the Naval Academy. I would also like to recognize uh, Lieutenant Michael Zampella, a graduate of St. John's, and a naval officer, whose worked to sustain this lecture series. <laughs> the lecture series is supported uh, annually by generous gifts given in honor of Lieutenant Commander Christensen, including a major gift this year and in f- forthcoming years from the Navy SEAL Foundation. For guests unfamiliar with our traditions at St. John's, after the lecture, we will retire out in the lobby for coffee, tea, and conversation. And shortly thereafter, there will be a question period in the adjacent room, the conversation room. And I encourage you all to stay for the question period. I would now like to introduce our lecturer this evening, Professor Andrew Basevich. Mr. Basevich is a Professor of History and International Relations Emeritus at Boston University. He's a graduate of the United States Military Academy, and he served for 23 years as a commissioned officer. He earned his Ph.D. in American diplomatic history from Princeton. He's also taught at West Point and Johns Hopkins. He's written many books, most recently Twilight of the American Century and America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. He's written articles for many journals, including The Atlantic Monthly, Foreign Affairs, The Nation, and the London Review of Books. He's earned a reputation as a penetrating thinker and an independent voice on the interaction of politics and foreign policy through American history. Please join me in welcoming Professor Andrew Bacevich.
1: Well, I am Immensely grateful for the opportunity to present this year's Lieutenant Commander Eric S. Christensen Memorial Lecture here at St. John's College. Let me say that my wife and I know what it means to lose a son in war. And we know as well how important it is to remember and to honor the sacrifice of those we have lost. This lecture series represents really a splendid way of ensuring that Lieutenant Commander Christensen will always be remembered by those who knew him and loved him. So for me to contribute, even in a small way, to that remembrance is a high honor. Now, if I were delivering a homily this evening, rather than a lecture, I would use the following as my text, a quotation from an American prophet. In America, the prophet wrote, life seems to move faster than anywhere else on the globe, and each generation is promised more than it will get which creates in each generation a furious, bewildered rage, the rage of people who cannot find solid ground beneath their feet. The prophet is James Baldwin, and the words are from his book Notes of a Native Son, published in 1955. My aim this evening in the third year of the so-called Age of Trump is to persuade you that, di- that the diagnosis that Baldwin offered back in 1955 remains apt today. But the essential problem we confront in our present crisis is the difficulty we Americans have in finding something solid to stand on. With many of our fellow citizens, expressing their furious, bewildered rage by electing Donald Trump president. In short, however much we may fixate on Trump, he is not the problem. He is merely a symptom or consequence of several problems that formed long before he appeared on the political scene and the developments in recent decades have served to exacerbate. I think an unfortunate irony of the Trump presidency is that it has provided an excuse for ignoring those problems. Let me begin by suggesting that in general we pay way too much attention to what presidents say and do. And that's that statement certainly applies, indeed especially applies, to our current president. For far too long, the cult of the presidency has provided an excuse for treating politics as a melodrama, staged at four-year intervals and centering on the hopes of another Roosevelt or Kennedy or Reagan appearing as agent of American deliverance. Donald Trump's ascent to the office once inhabited by such worthies, should demolish such fantasies once and for all. (laughs) Now, my own bet is that Trump will turn out to be the least significant president in recent memory. That is, he will, assuming that he avoids blundering into a major war, and I fully understand that such an assumption is a non-trivial one. But if he does manage to steer clear of an apocalyptic armed conflict, Donald Trump will will prove to be what Millard Fillmore was to the 19th century, and Warren G. Harding to the 20th. To be sure, in the meantime, Trump routinely says, or tweets, innumerable things that qualify as inane or inflammatory or downright reprehensible, to put it mildly. This is true whether he is spouting off about climate change, or guns, or immigrants from south of the border. And he has done or proposed more than a few things that are wrongheaded. But little of what he has actually done is irreversible. Should Trump's successor demonstrate a modicum of, cons- of competence and decency, most of the damage that Trump has wreaked can be repaired. Note that most of the horrors predicted by Trump's critics have not come to pass. The constitutional order remains intact. Press freedom has rarely been exercised with comparable vigor and compassion. And passion. In the streets, Ordinary citizens assemble, speak their minds, and raise their voices in protest. Those who are so inclined worship as they see fit. And despite frequent references to fascism, mostly from members of the media, that belief system remains distinctly unfashionable. Running for office as a fascist in America today is not a recipe for electoral success. Indeed, you'll likely have a better chance of styling yourself a socialist. To my mind, one of the most striking aspects of the Trump presidency is the gap between rhetoric and action, between what the president vows or threatens to do and what in most cases actually ensues. Such a gap exists with any administration, of course. But with Trump, it reached unusually large proportions, exacerbated further, as we have learned in the Mueller report, by subversive subordinates. Trump likes to pose as a bold leader, making big decisions that will make America great again. In practice, however, his decisions tend to fall well short of momentous. Note that whenever possible, he dodges the central issue and offloads responsibility onto the Congress or onto the military. Or he allows insubordinate subordinates to stymie his declared intentions. He's a weak leader. We've seen this time and again. We got a hint of this early in his presidency when Trump announced that he intended to organize a grand parade down Pennsylvania Avenue that would flaunt American military might. The Pentagon responded to this clear-cut directive from the commander-in-chief by announcing that it would take the matter under consideration. (laughs) Months passed. Various inflated price tags were floated. In the end, nothing happened. And with his notoriously short attention span, Trump either lost interest in the parade or forgot about it altogether. So it has been, time and time again, especially on matters related to national security, which happens to be my primary area of interest. Consider NATO. As a candidate, Trump announced that it was time for European nations to assume responsibility for their own security, a position with which I happen to agree, by the way. Yet despite his anti-NATO posturing, the United States remains a member of the alliance, having affirmed Article 5, which commits us to Europe's defense, even as wealthy European countries like Germany Continue to underinvest in their own military establishments. Indeed, despite Trump's putative bromance with Vladimir Putin, the Pentagon is expanding the US military presence in Eastern Europe, thereby offering increased security assurances to nations that feel most directly threatened by Russia. The United States Army, my former service, now has a mechanized brigade, stationed in Poland. U.S. Air Force warplanes patrol Baltic airspace. U.S. National Guard troops train in Lithuania. Trump could, theoretically, cancel these deployments, but he has not. Or consider the Afghanistan war, the longest in our country's history. Candidate Trump denounced the war and promised to win it or get out. As president, he has repeatedly announced his intention to end U.S. participation in this endless war. His subordinates have responded by either contradicting or ignoring the boss. The Afghanistan war continues, and so it will, until we settle on a formula that allows the Taliban back in so that we can get out, preferably without admitting defeat. A decent interval was the phrase employed in a different context. Much the same applies to Syria. Trump's predecessor ordered US forces to intervene in Syria without bothering to get congressional authorization. Trump announced that he intended to terminate US involvement in that conflict forthwith. Members of Congress from both parties immediately protested. The president soon thereafter revised his position. He is, as I said, a weak leader. And you can count on US forces to remain in Syria in some capacity for some time to come. Whatever the central theme of the Trump administration's approach to national security, if there is a theme, it is clearly not the isolationism that his recurring references to America First seem to imply. Now, more than a few of Trump's critics fear that he is leading us down the path to fascism. But that's not going to happen. Doing so would require a sense of purpose that he shows no signs of possessing. Say what you will about fascists or other totalitarian ideologues. They at least have a worldview and convictions. They adhere to a theory of history. Trump has none of these. Trump is not a Hitler or a Mussolini He's not even a Franco or a Peron. Hence, my expectation that he will ultimately prove to be an insignificant figure, notwithstanding the hysteria that has enveloped much of our country since the day of his election. History is likely to judge Trump as less disruptive than he now appears and wishes to appear, and as more of a transitory figure who simultaneously embodied and laid bare the accumulating contradictions of American life, which brings me, you may say, brings me finally, brings me to the central theme of my remarks. What actually explains the rage of the people who cannot find solid ground beneath their feet and express their dismay by electing Donald Trump president? Well, blame sexism, Fox News, James Comey, Russian meddling, and Hillary's failure to visit Wisconsin all you want. But a more fundamental explanation is this. The election of 2016 constituted a referendum on the course of recent US history. It was a de facto plebiscite. And that plebiscite rendered a definitive judgment. The underlying consensus in forming basic U.S. policy since the end of the Cold War has collapsed. Premises for basic policy that members of the policy elite have long treated as self-evident and sacrosanct no longer command the backing or the assent of the American people. Although that fact has not yet sunk in among the chattering classes. To repurpose an expression credited to James Carville back when he was first trying to get Bill Clinton elected president, it's the ideas, stupid. Or to put it another way, a specific set of ideas marketed in the wake of the Cold War as defining our future and the future of humankind, were thoroughly tried, and over the course of a, of a quarter century were found sadly wanting. So those who imagine that Trump's removal will put things right, such would seem to be the few at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other prominent media outlets. They are deluding themselves. To persist in thinking that Trump defines the problem is to commit an error of the first order. To understand what I'm getting at, consider this second quote. Without the Cold War, what's the point of being an American? Now, as a long twilight struggle was finally winding down, Harry, Rabbit, Engstrom, novelist John Updike's late 20th century everyman, pondered that question. And in short order, Rabbit got an answer to this question, and so too did his fellow citizens, albeit with only perfunctory consultation. The end of the Cold War offered cause for celebration. On that point, just about everyone agreed, me very much included. Yet just about everyone also agreed that the passing of this era of of continuing tension and occasional danger did not require reflection, nor regret, nor repentance on the part of the United States. And this, I have come to believe, was a great oversight. As to what would come next after the Cold War, well, on such matters, policy elites professed professed to have matters well in hand. On that score, Rabbit Angstrom was told he could rest easy. People, much smarter than he was, had all the answers. The dawning era, the post-Cold War era, elites believed, summoned Americans to look not to the past but to the future, exploiting vast opportunities that were now presenting themselves. No longer obliged to fret about communist takeovers or the risks of nuclear Armageddon, Americans could now throw caution to the winds. In 1989, a hitherto obscure political scientist named Francis Fukuyama rocketed to worldwide fame by penning an essay announcing that history itself had ended. Fukuyama's end of history hypothesis caught fire, not because it was true, but because it was exquisitely timed. It captured the mood of the moment, and it played directly to a conceit that Americans had been nursing Ever since the very founding of the Republic, if not before. And with the end of the Cold War, that conceit came roaring back in full force. Its essence can be simply stated We are God's new Israel. We represent the Alpha and the Omega of human history. We define the aspirations and the destiny of all others. We stand for freedom, even if our reigning conception of what freedom requires, allows, or forbids continuously evolves and occasionally veers sharply in a different direction. So with the fall of the Berlin Wall and a sole superpower, a popular phrase of the day, now positioned to call the shots Utopia beckoned just around the corner. That's the way things looked back at the dawn of the 1990s. All that was needed was for the United States to demonstrate the requisite confidence and resolve to usher that utopia into existence. Three specific propositions comprised the elite consensus that coalesced there in the initial decade. Of the post-Cold War era. According to the first of those propositions, the globalization of corporate capitalism held the key to wealth creation on a hitherto unimaginable scale, to the benefit of everyone. According to the second proposition, jettisoning norms derived from what we might broadly call Judeo-Christian religious traditions, held the key to the further expansion and indeed the perfection of personal autonomy, and autonomy became synonymous with freedom. According to the third proposition, muscular global leadership exercised by the United States held the key to promoting a stable And humane international order. So, unfettered neoliberalism plus the unencumbered self plus unabashed American assertiveness, these defined the elements of the post Cold War consensus that formed in the early half of the 19, in the first half of the 1990s. These plus, but enthusiasts were already calling the information revolution. The miracle of that revolution, gathering momentum just as the Soviet Union was going down for the count, provided what we might call the secret sauce that infused the emerging consensus with, a, with, a, with, an, with an element of historical inevitability. Now, the Cold War itself, running from the late 1940s to the end of the 1980s, had fostered notable improvements in computational speed and capacity. During those decades, new modes of communication appeared, along with new techniques for storing, accessing, and manipulating information. Yet, however however impressive these developments, only as the Cold War receded did they move from background to forefront. For true believers, information technology served, indeed serves, a quasi-theological function, promising answers to life's ultimate questions. Although God might be dead, with it Americans found in Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, nerdy, but nonetheless compelling idols. More immediately, in the eyes of the policy elite, the information revolution meshed with and reinforced the new policy consensus. For those focused on political economy, information technology greased the wheels of globalized capitalism, creating vast new opportunities for trade and investment. Information would accelerate the movement of capital, goods, and ideas. The world itself, we were told, would be flat, open, and accessible to all. For those looking to shed constraints on the exercise of personal freedom, information promised empowerment, making identity itself something to choose, discard, or modify according to individual preference. For members of the national security apparatus, the information revolution seemed certain to endow the United States with unassailable military capabilities. Properly employed, armed force itself would become more precise, more decisive, even more humane. As employed by the best trained, best equipped, and most capable forces the world had ever seen, violence could become a means for countering evil and promoting good, not to be held in reserve, but to be put to use. That these various enhancements would combine to improve the human condition more generally was taken for granted. That they would, in due course, align everybody from Afghans to Zimbabweans with American values and the American way of life seemed more or less inevitable. The three presidents of the post-Cold War era, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, put these several propositions to the test. Now politics is theater requires us to pretend that our 42nd, 43rd, and 44th presidents differed in fundamental ways. In practice, however, their similarities greatly outweighed any of their differences. Taken together, the administrations over which they presided collaborated in pursuing a common goal, each intent on proving that the post-Cold War consensus could work, notwithstanding mounting evidence to the contrary. And to be fair, that consensus did work for some. Globalization did make some people very rich indeed. In doing so, however, it greatly exacerbated inequality while doing nothing to alleviate the condition of the American working class and underclass. We are, after all, a nation in which members of the top 1% control more wealth than the bottom 90%. I'm not sure what's more shocking, the statistics that describe economic inequality or the fact that those statistics are widely reported and then essentially shrugged off. The abandonment of traditional moral norms upended long-established social hierarchies. The resulting emphasis on diversity and multiculturalism did improve the status of social groups, of groups long subjected to discrimination. Yet these advances have done remarkably little to reduce the alienation and despair pervading a society that suffers from an epidemic of chronic substance abuse, morbid obesity, teen suicide, and similar afflictions. Throw in the world's highest incarceration rate, a seemingly insatiable appetite for pornography, urban school system stuck in permanent crisis, and mass shootings that occur with metronomic regularity, and what you have is something other than the profile of a healthy society. Now, let me emphasize, the good old days of my youth were not good. Racism, sexism, nativism, and other forms of prejudice remain a blot on the American story that can never be eradicated. Yet, in my judgment, we are not yet in a position to look down our noses at our benighted forebears. We have our own sins to attend to. As for militarized American global leadership, it has indeed resulted in various bad actors, such as Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi, meeting richly deserved fates. Yet it has also embroiled the United States in a series of costly, senseless, unsuccessful and ultimately counterproductive wars. US forces today are unquestionably the best military in all of history, of that I have not the slightest doubt. But what is the purpose of war? It is to accomplish the essential political objectives of the state when all other means have been exhausted or are unavailable. Victory means achieving stated political objectives conclusively and at a reasonable cost. And by that standard, U.S. forces rarely win, even when allowed years to accomplish their task. As for the vaunted information revolution, let me confess here that you are looking at a guy who doesn't own a smartphone who doesn't use social media and who doesn't tweet <laughs> even so i am prepared to argue that the impact of the inf- of information technology that envelops our lives is ambiguous at best even if those with eyeballs glued to their personal electronic device can't tolerate being offline long enough to assess the actual cost of being perpetually connected. Here's my point. In the election of November 2016, Americans who not without reason considered themselves ill-served by the post-Cold War consensus signaled that they had had enough. Voters who concluded that neoliberal economic policies were not working to their benefit provided the crucial margin in electing Donald Trump president. So, too, did voters who found little to admire in a culture that seemingly takes its motto from the outback steakhouse chain you know, no rules, just right. And so, too did still others who found nothing to celebrate in the conversion of the United States military into a global police force that is permanently at war, especially when it is their sons and daughters who are serving tours in places like Iraq and Afghanistan with little to show as a result. This is what Trump has wrought. His ascent to the presidency has made it impossible to ignore any longer the shortcomings of the post Cold War consensus. In his own bizarre way, he has given voice to millions who see themselves, not without reason, as dispossessed, abused, and forgotten. I'm not suggesting that this was Trump's conscious. Purchase. He has no purchase purpose other than self-aggrandizement. So should we dismiss Trump voters as ignorant or stupid or bigoted in the notorious characterization of Hillary Clinton as mere deplorables? I would caution against doing that. After all, they are our fellow citizens. And they are both numerous and more than slightly pissed off. And their claims and concerns deserve as much attention as yours and mine. And how has the political establishment responded to this extraordinary repudiation? For that's what it was, a repudiation of both major parties. Well, thus far, at least the establishment response amounts to a declaration of its own bankruptcy. The Republican Party, to the extent that we can still say one exists, the Republican Party clings to the notion that reducing taxes, cutting government red tape, restricting abortion, curbing immigration, protecting gun rights, and increasing military spending will alleviate all that ails the country. To judge by the promises contained in its already forgotten Better Deal, The Democratic Party, that the Democratic Party unveiled not long ago, the Democrats believe that raising the minimum wage, capping the cost of prescription drugs, and creating apprenticeship programs for the unemployed will return their party to the good graces of the American electorate. In both parties, in my estimation, embarrassingly small bore thinking prevails with Republicans and Democrats equally bereft of fresh ideas. Now, let me add, quickly add this caveat. The proposed Green New Deal offered by left-wing Democrats does indeed qualify as bold and innovative. Yet it very much remains to be seen whether this initiative will gain political traction anywhere other than among a minority of self-described progressives. I very much hope that it does, even if it remains unclear what implementing the Green New Deal will cost and how it will be paid for. Now I am, by temperament, a conservative and a traditionalist, wary of revolutionary movements that more often than not end up being hijacked, by nefarious plotters more interested in satisfying their own ambitions than in pursuing high ideals. And even I am prepared to admit that the status quo appears increasingly untenable. Incremental change will not suffice. The challenge of the moment is to embrace radicalism without succumbing to irresponsibility. Perhaps the the one good thing we can say about the election of Donald Trump is this. To borrow an image from Thomas Jefferson, it should serve as a fire fire bell in the night, curing Americans once and for all from the illusion that from the White House comes redemption. By now, we ought to have had our fill of de facto monarchy. By extension... Americans should come to see as intolerable the meanness, corruption, and partisan dysfunction so much in evidence at the opposite end of Pennsylvania Avenue. We need not wax sentimental over the days when Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen presided over the Senate to conclude that Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer represent something other than progress. If Congress continues to behave as contemptibly as it has in recent years and weeks, it will, by default, allow the conditions that have produced Trump and his cronies to prevail. So it's time to take another stab at an approach to governance worthy of a democratic republic. Where to begin? I submit that Rabbit Angstrom's question offers a place to start. What's the point of being an American? Now, there are many ways of answering Rabbit's query. My own answer is rooted in an abiding conviction that our problems are less quantitative than qualitative, rather than simply more, yet more wealth, more freedom, more attempts at bending the global order to suit our preferences, the times call for different. In my view, the point of being an American is to participate in creating a society that strikes a balance between wants and needs that exists in harmony with nature and the rest of humankind and that is rooted in an agreed-upon conception of the common good that lasts A phrase from my youth that has all but disappeared from political discourse. Now, people of goodwill are likely to to differ on how to fulfill those aspirations, but therein lies the basis for an interesting debate, one that is essential to prospects of stemming the accelerating decay of American civic life. Yet the beginning of wisdom, I submit, lies in recognizing that Trump is not cause, but consequence. A post-Cold War consensus that promoted transnational corporate greed, mistook libertinism for liberty, and embraced militarized neo-imperialism as the essence of enlightened statecraft, created the conditions that handed Trump the presidency. When he finally leaves office, whatever the circumstances, many Americans will celebrate. Much as they celebrated the fall of the Berlin Wall just over a quarter of a century ago. But as was the case back then, the real question is this one. What should come next. In that instance, back in 1989, the answers we embraced, informed by an extraordinary bout of hubris, were deeply defective. Perhaps next time around, chastened by the events of the recent past, we may be able to do at least slightly better. Thank you.